16, so if you could get your copy of God's Word and turn there. Uh, If you use one of these Bibles in the back, it's on page 811. But before I read, I just want to uh, remind you about our dollar for missions offering that we're taking up today. There's a basket at the front entrance, and there's one over here in the uh, foyer between the two uh, buildings. Uh, When I was thinking about this, you know, we say a dollar for missions, but what do we really mean by missions? What this dollar does is it extends the name of God in all the earth so that all men might know who God is and worship him. That's what this dollar represents, is the extension, uh, hallowing of God's name. Amen. Uh, And just uh, also briefly, uh, we have tried to focus our offering each month on a particular missionary endeavor. And this month, we're going to be giving our offering, uh, or part of it, to Ethan and Eileen Merrick, uh, who are going to be going to Dubai, uh, the Arab immigrants, uh, to work in a church there, and then also study the language and eventually establish a work Uh, for the extension of the kingdom of God in that part of the world to the Muslim world. So uh, this this offering is going to Ethan and Eileen to help pay for their airline ticket over there, that God's name might be glorified. Amen. Follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Well, good morning, church. It's nice to be with you again this morning. I'm looking forward to kicking off this new six-part series on prayer. If you're a guest with us this morning, my name's Mark. You picked a good Sunday. We're starting something brand new. So hope you'll be with us uh, the remaining time that we'll be studying the subject of prayer together. A little bit later in my sermon, I'll tell you why we're preaching on prayer. Um, But what I want to do right now is sort of give you... um, a burden that I have as a pastor um, for the priority of prayer and its importance. So this is the first point of the sermon this morning is I just want to talk a little bit about the priority of prayer. If you, if you look throughout the Old Testament, the people of God continually fall into periods of spiritual stagnation and then cultural accommodation and then idol worship. It's that sort of progressive declension. And they begin to look more and more like the surrounding pagan societies. But then there's this turning to God. There's this spiritual renewal and revitalization that takes place. And if we look at all the the Old Testament and we look at these various revivals, they could be called, or renewals, we're, we're struck at how different they are because they don't follow any sort of pattern. Some are more formal ceremonies and others are spontaneous. They're usually led by a strong leader, but they're not always. Sometimes they bubble up from the grassroots. But one thing is stated over and over again as part of these renewals for God's people, and that is the people cried out to the Lord. 
It's the only factor that's always present. This corporate, intense, prevailing prayer to God. Not for personal needs, but for the presence and reality of God among his people. And even in the New Testament, under the leadership of the apostles, it's evident that there's still a need, even with the coming of Christ, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, there is still a need for renewal among God's people. I mean, we see in Acts 2, the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit is promised in Joel, and God's people are filled with the Spirit and begin to speak and proclaim the gospel. However, we see throughout the book of Acts sort of little mini Pentecosts that take, takes place, like Acts 4 and Acts 7 and Acts 8 and Acts 10 and Acts 13, where God's people again run into need, where they have need for power and boldness and help from the Spirit. They call out to Him and they are renewed in prayer, through prayer. Now, all these things have in common, from Genesis to Revelation, we see there's a continual need for God's people to be renewed. And that this, re- this renewal of God's people is always connected to prayer. And so, I as a pastor, and I think I speak for our entire leadership, we see this as a need in our own church. Not that we're in, we don't see any sort of rampant idol worship taking place. We don't see any sort of widespread stagnation and decline and spiritual lethargy, but we need renewal, and we definitely sense it. And perhaps the greatest way we sense it is that we don't sense our need for renewal enough. I mean, the fact that we don't sense our profound need for God, I'm speaking for myself primarily, that that I don't wake up with with a, a real sense upon my heart and upon my soul that I need God every hour is evidence that I need God every hour. And it's a sign for renewal. John Owen said, A minister may fill his pews, his communion role, the mouths of the public, but what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. And that's a challenge to me as as a pastor. If I look at my prayer life, and look at my degree to which I'm depending upon God and, and, and relying upon God. That is what I am. And not anything more. And that is what you are. And nothing more. I mean, as we see in the book of Acts, a praying church, a dependent church, a God-needy church is a powerful church. Because the power doesn't reside in the church. The power resides in the Spirit of God in the church. Our prayers reveal our level of self-sufficiency. If we're lacking in prayer, we reveal that we actually believe that we can do church together, be the church of Jesus Christ that we're called to be, and we don't need the power of God. As a man said, our churches, quoting Jesus, must be houses of prayer, not houses of programs. And if everyone, I mean, ask this question. Here's a convicting question. Question I ask myself. If everyone prayed like you, how prayerful is our church? That's a challenging, that's a challenging, challenging word. And so prayer is a priority. Prayer must be a priority for us. For us. It is the only way to draw near to God and have him draw near to us. 
Prayer is that channel of connection between our great God and we, his needy people. And we know in our day that we need God desperately. We need God's church, our particular local church. We can pray for other churches. We, can pr- we should pray for local churches in our community, and we do. Pray for local churches in our state. Pray for churches in our nation. Pray for churches around the world that they would be renewed. But we, as God's people here, as a part of Heritage Baptist Church, we have a responsibility to do what we can to cultivate spiritual vitality and life in our own midst. And we can do that in a way that we can't do for all those other places. We can actually gather together as God's people, call upon the Lord, and seek him intentionally. So our, in our elders' meetings, as we meet weekly, and as, as we t- discuss uh, both the things that are going on in the church today and, and, and what, what, we, what we dream about, what we pray for, what we long for, we, we kept coming back to this sort of sense that, you know what? we are like little children. We have not felt that as we need to. We have not felt our profound childlikeness the way we need to. I think we too quickly go to ideas, what we can dream up, what we can think about, and that's good and great. God wants us to, to, to think and, and, to, and to dream for his glory and to hope, but we must never do that apart from dependence upon him, prayer to him, and acknowledgement of him. And I think we've been convicted. The Lord has brought near to us the reminder that we need to seek him or we're in big trouble. And God will lovingly, as a father, discipline us and bring us back where we need to be. And we would like to submit to his uh, lesser discipline up front and hear from him and seek him the way we need to. So as, a, as, a, as pastors, we began to talk about what we might be able to do to not only increase our prayerfulness as pastors, but our church in general. And so I want to lay out a plan for you. Now that I hope I've stressed the priority and the need for prayer um, as part of the, the life of the church, um, I want to I move on secondly to our plan for strengthening prayer in our church before we come to the pattern of prayer that we'll see in the Lord's, uh, Lord's uh, prayer here in a moment. But let me lay out what we hope will be a fall initiative for us that, that's going to take us through the month of November. We want to really focus as a people um, upon prayer for several months. And here's what we're going to do. First of all, we are going to preach over the next six weeks, six sermons in a sermon series entitled Pray Like This. Every one of our pastors will be participating. I'm just kicking it off, and then I got the rest of the month of August off from preaching at least. I'll be doing lots of other stuff. But Pastor Ted will be coming and preaching a couple of sermons. Pastor Keith will be coming and preaching a couple of sermons. And Pastor Jonathan will be preaching one as well, all on particular aspects of prayer that they sense God has burdened them about. So they're going to be bringing you what the Lord has laid on their heart specifically to speak to our church about regarding prayer. And we'll be doing that through August 30th. Secondly, we are, we are as you saw this morning, we are trying to instruct our church about prayer by reading together the Heidelberg Catechism and praying corporately in light of that through the Lord's Prayer together. So we did it this morning. Jonathan led us through a reading of Heidelberg Catechism question um, question regarding the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name, and our songs and our prayers and our services weekly, we hope to focus around the Lord's Prayer. Thirdly, as you go out of the church or out of the gym this morning in the lobby, there will be a 40-day prayer booklet. Now, this is something that um, some te- the Texas Baptists put together and Kentucky adopted, and it, as I've read through it, I found it very, very helpful 
And what it is, it's a one page a day for the next six weeks. As we go through this sermon series, we are asking each family to take this booklet and pray through it. There's a one page sort of stirred a prayer and then a prayer point. And wouldn't it be great if we had 100% of our church praying about the same thing every day for 40 days? And so we want to take something, give you a resource that you can actually use on a daily basis that's realistic, that's doable, that's not asking you to sacrifice some sort of half day or multiple hours in your day. It's asking you to take five minutes out of your day and to center your heart on something that concerns the heart of God as a need for revitalization and renewal in our church. Please do that. Your prayer matters. It matters. As, As we see in the book of Acts, as God's people assemble and as they pray collectively about something together, there's power in that that is not present when the Spirit is, is leading a person to pray individually about something concerning their individual needs, which he does. But this is something that we as God's people, as God's church, are praying together on a daily basis for 40 days all the way through August 30th. So please take one of those for your family. You can use it at dinner. It'd be a great thing to do at dinner just to read that together and to pray together, either as a couple, as an individual, or as a family about um, that point for the day. So that's a 40-day prayer guide. We're making that available to you. It's absolutely free. Just take one on your way out and start tomorrow morning or tomorrow afternoon or tomorrow evening. Uh, Fourthly, we're we're, going to try to use our communication as a church through social media and email to stir you up to prayer on a weekly basis. So we are going to be giving you videos, brief training videos for how to pray using the Bible. You'll be getting one of those in your email every Monday. They're about five minutes long. They're by Don Whitney, who's a friend of our church. He's a professor over at Southern Seminary. He's great at this. He's wonderful at helping the church think about biblical spirituality. It's what he teaches on. It's what he's devoted his whole life's labor to, his writing ministry, his preaching ministry, his teaching ministry, is all about renewal for God's people. And this, these videos will take you how to, teach you how to connect reading Scripture to prayer and how to weave those two things together. Because believe it or not, that's really how, how prayer is supposed to work. Prayer is supposed to work best in conjunction with God's Word. So we'll be giving those to you uh, over the next six weeks one, one five-minute video every Monday to sort of stoke your heart for prayer. And then intermittently on our Facebook page, and as, as we come across helpful things, we'll post things about, about prayer, which we hope will stir you as well. This is all ultimately leading. This 40-day season that we're calling our church to pray individually, preach on it, worship together, uh, pray together, all this stuff is ultimately to lead up to September to November where we are going to cancel our adult Sunday school classes. We don't need more teaching this next season. We're convinced of that. What we need is prayer. So we are asking that all the adults as, that, are, that, that call Heritage Baptist Church home, that are either in membership with our church or pursuing membership with our church, that you come at 9.30 starting in September for 13 weeks in that old HCS chapel and pray with us. We are going to have a thir- 13 different topics Structure the meetings intentionally and helpfully to pray for 45 minutes, just prayer. No teaching, very little talking. We're going to set the table, set, uh, set the agenda for the, for the meeting, and then pray together. And for 13 weeks, we are going to devote ourselves to prayer in the mornings before our services. 
and ultimately you say, well, well what's going to happen? Is there going to be any teaching whatsoever uh, during that time? Uh, no, not during that time, but we are moving the gospel project, which we normally go through, to Wednesday night. So instead of our Wednesday night time being primarily a prayer meeting, we're going to make it a Bible study. So we, those of you who participate in that, which we encourage you, if you're able to, please come. We're going we're to study scripture together on Wednesday nights from September to November. Kids will be involved in ministry and, and things like that. Um, but we invite you to do that. And, and, and so that, we're going to make that shift um, in the fall. And then lastly, um, our books of the month, which you know, as you know, we've been doing this year, we've been trying to highlight specific books that we encourage you to read. Those this month, or, uh, the month of August is largely going to focus on prayer. So um, we encourage you, if you're a reader, um, to, to grab one of those. If you're not a reader, we really encourage you to become a reader. And not everybody has to read at the same pace. Not everybody has to read the same amount. No, nobody does. But we encourage you to read um, because God gave us a book. Okay, and that means that means he expects us to read. So we should we should seek to devote ourselves to to reading and learning about prayer as well. So that's it. We are trying to saturate our meetings, our focus, and and our desires um, as a church on the Lord through prayer for these next several months. And we hope you'll join us um, in that. So that's our plan. Um, our plan for prayer. Now that's enough about that. Now what I want to do is take the next uh, twenty five minutes or so and unpack the Lord's Prayer here in Matthew chapter 6. Now, the Lord's Prayer may be the single set of words that is spoken more often than any other set of words in the history of the world. Have you thought about that? I mean, it's probably true, right? The Lord's Prayer has probably been, and it's been you know, translated in various languages, but these words that Jesus gave to teach his disciples how to pray have probably been spoken more often than any other set of words in the history of the world. And the, in these words, Jesus gives us the meaning in a few words to the spiritual experience that the whole world is starving for. Think about that. In these simple verses, these simple petitions, these simple statements that Jesus gives for teaching his disciples how to talk to God... He is giving us the, so to speak, key to spiritual experience. I mean, everybody's chasing spiritual experience or something. And he says, you want to know God? Here's how you can know God. You want to relate to God? Here's how you can relate to God. Jesus is saying to us, as it were, wouldn't you like to be able to come face to face with the king of the universe every day, pour out your heart to him, and sense that he is listening to you and loving you? And Jesus, we would say, yeah. And Jesus says, it's right here. It's all in the Lord's Prayer. Now, three formulas have been used for centuries to teach God's people the essence of the Christian faith. Those three formulas are the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. These three formulas teach us essentially what Christians believe, how Christians behave, and how Christians relate to God. Now, of course, this text in Matthew chapter 6 on the Lord's Prayer, verses 9 through 13, finds in its context a larger teaching discourse of Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews 5 through 7. Chapters 5 through 7 of the Gospel of Matthew are Jesus teaching, it's a sermon, 
to which he's given to his disciples and the crowds that are gathered around, what is the essence of what it means to be a disciple of his and live in the kingdom of God. That's what his sermon is all about. And in this famous sermon, Jesus flips many common Hebrew and Jewish beliefs and traditions and turns them upside down. He says, you've heard it said, he often begins his teaching. But I say to you, and in doing so, he flips our traditional thinking about success and poverty, marriage and sexuality, law and mercy, and many of the pressing issues of his day and ours completely upside down. To where where at the end of this sermon, no doubt, jaws were on the grass. But when he gets to the theme of prayer here in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus doesn't just flip the common notion upside down. Jesus teaches his followers how to flip their own hearts right side up. In the Lord's Prayer, he gives us a simple and beautiful blueprint for how to pray to our Father who is in heaven. The Lord's Prayer is made up of three God-centered statements petitions, requests, and three, what we could call man-centered or us-centered requests. Now, what's important to note, and I'll, 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 t- I'll talk about this in just a second, is that those us-centered requests are done in light of the God-centered ones. They're never an end in themselves. Praying for our needs, praying for our protection, praying for God's power and provision for us is never done in isolation from his greater glory, name, fame, and honor. But nevertheless, the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer found here only in verse 10 of Matthew chapter 6 have to do with God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. The second three have to do with our provision Give us this day our daily bread, our pardon, and forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors, and our protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The order is very important, as I said. By putting the God-centered petitions first, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. By putting those God-centered petitions first, The prayer reminds us, brothers and sisters, that our deepest needs are not our felt needs. Think about that. I mean, do you, like me, live often by how you feel? And do you relate to God on the basis of how you're feeling? Of course we do. But what Jesus is teaching us here is when you come to prayer and you come to relate to God, the greatest needs of your heart and soul are not what you're feeling at all. Unless what you're feeling, and we sometimes feel this as God's people, that God's great glory needs to be known in the earth. And the weight and value of his name needs to be appreciated by people, including me. So our deepest needs are God. That's what this prayer is saying. Our deepest needs are God. For God to show up in our lives and shape our thinking and our motivation and our hearts and our attitudes and our behavior so that when we come to those latter petitions, our needs really are our needs. And we're not merely praying for comforts and luxuries. And our protection is really needed. 
And God's forgiveness is really needed. Because now we've seen God as who he is. And we sense our filth and our defilement and our sin. And we need his forgiveness. So the order is very, very important. And our understanding of what our needs are must be seen in that light. So with that said, setting the context, I hope that gives you some help. Let's dive right in and go briefly one petition at a time and try to unpack this. All right? Here's the way Jesus begins. He says, verse 9, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Now, we already read from the Heidelberg, very helpful statement about what it means to pray to God as our Father. But this, as, was already been, as, as I think has been reflected in our songs and the things that have already been said this morning, this should make us stand in awe and wonder. While the vast majority of our world believes that if there is a God at all, he owes us love. As Christians, we understand that our privilege of calling God our Father and approaching him in prayer is blood-bought. John chapter 1, verse 12. To as many as received him, received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, believing in the name of Jesus, receiving him as Lord and Savior. To them, he gave the right to be called children of God. No one else. To To those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. And such we are, 1 John says. But that didn't come apart from our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, suffering in our place for our sin. As Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5 teaches that Jesus was born of a woman, Mary, born under the law. That is, he assumed our nature as a human being and he assumed our obligation to obey God's law. That's what Adam and Eve failed to do and got us into this whole mess in the beginning. And the Bible teaches that we are born in sin as a result of what Adam and Eve did. Therefore, we're born out of relationship with God, out of fellowship with God. Something has to happen in order for God to be reconciled to us and us to be reconciled to God. And Galatians 4 teaches us what that is. That Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, becomes a human being born of the Virgin Mary. And he assumes as his obligation, our duty to obey God perfectly. Where Adam failed, where humanity failed, the second Adam steps in and assumes our responsibility. And Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5 says that he was born, on, born, of, a, born, under woman, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law, that's us, and that we might receive the adoption of sons. It doesn't tell us how he does that in that verse. It just says he came to redeem us. But Galatians 3 tells us, the chapter before that, when it said Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That is, Christ on the cross hangs and is cursed of God for our sin. So that when we place our faith in him, when we receive him, when we believe in him, we are given a title to become an adopted child of God. Our sins are washed away. They are forgiven because of the work of Christ for us. And it is that and that alone that allows us to call God our father. Do you know that when we start our prayer, our God and our our father who who is in heaven, we are implicitly saying 
in Jesus' name. Because unless we, that's why we, that's why Christians close their prayers in Jesus' name often. Because it is only by the name and and, and, the, and the grace of Christ, the, what he's done for us in redeeming us from our sin and purchasing our right to be called a child of God, that we get to pray to God and expect him to hear us at all. We pray on because of what Jesus has done. That's what in Jesus' name means. And so when we pray, our Father in heaven, where we should start as we approach God as our Father is we say, God, you are my Father in heaven. Because of my elder brother's intercession and curse-bearing on my behalf. Your son that you sent to be my savior through his death, through his resurrection, through my union with him by faith alone, I am granted access and welcome and hugged and kissed by you. Because that's what our Father does. He receives us, but He receives us through the mediation of the Son, through the work of the Son on our behalf. So I'm asking some of you here this morning, is God your Father in that way? Not everyone in this room has God as their Father in that way. Okay, you may pray to God, you may seek God, you may talk to God, but if you are not doing so on the basis of what Christ has done, The Bible says that God is not listening to you. Because we come to him only on the basis of the work of Christ. And it's through the work of Christ that we are granted access. But here's the good news. Here's the really, really good news this morning. You can have your relationship with God totally changed in a minute. It can go from separation from God to fellowship with God. And all that's needed is is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. You turn from your sin and you embrace Christ by faith. You say, I need him to be my savior. And fellowship with God is restored and God becomes your father and you become his child and you are welcome to call upon him anytime in Christ's name. And that's the good news. Approaching God as father. And here's the good news, Christian. When we approach God as our father... We don't have to impress him, do we? We're not going to the president. We're not going to a judge. We're not going to a king. Under which situations we better dress up and clean up. But when God is our father, you can go looking like this. Or in your bathrobe. <laughs> Just might not want to go before anybody else with that. But you, know, but you can go, come as you are, Right? You can approach God as Father. You don't have to impress Him. You don't have to perform for Him. You don't have to put on a show. I mean, this is the complete contrast to what Jesus was teaching the Gentiles do in prayer. Look at verse verse 5 of chapter 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and street corners. They may be seen by others. I want to be known as a good prayer. I want to be known as somebody who prays well. Look at me, how spiritual I am. Look at how holy I am. Look at how I relate to God. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. They've got what they're seeking, the approval of people. Wow, he must be godly. Look at him. That's pretty impressive. You hear what he's praying? But when you pray, verse 6, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who's in secret. Your father who's in secret. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. See the guy in the street corner? 
He doesn't know God as Father. That's his problem. He still thinks he's got to impress God, perform for God, work for God in order to receive forgiveness and acceptance with God. That's why he's doing all that. We can go in our, seek, in our closet and pray and seek God and talk to God whether anybody knows about it or not because we have a Father in heaven. It's great news. Verse 7, and when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they're going to be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows that what you need before you ask Him. See, we don't have to, oh God, what's the right language to use? What do I need to say? He's your dad. Talk to him. If you have a good father, you know you don't need to prepare an argument to go ask him for something. You just walk in the kitchen. Dad, can I get a new Ninja Turtle? And the father will either say yes or no. That's it. That's what I get asked a lot. So, that, I mean, that's the, that's the posture. And then the son feels welcomed by the father. He doesn't feel dismissed by his dad. Oh, dad. He feels, I mean, even in the way the father responds, he should feel loved by the father. So that's, that's our posture in prayer. See, we, see the, the, we, we have to get this. This is where this initiative has to start. Otherwise, the next five months is performance. And we don't want that. We're a gospel church. We're not about performing. Oh, if, if I devote 40 days to prayer, then God will really hear me. Oh, if I come to all the prayer meetings, then he will definitely answer my prayers. No, God is our father. He will do what's best to us, best for us. We get to pray. That's what it's all about. That's why we start our father in heaven. We gather Right now, in this place, under my preaching, under a Father in heaven who loves us and is ecstatic about us being in the family. And through the work of Christ has done everything that is needed. It was his idea to send Christ in the first place. He loves you. He wants you with him. He didn't elect a non, not like a random group of people. He wanted you. And so, as part of his family, we get to gather together and we get to seek his face. Paul Tripp says this, What a glorious and encouraging way Christ instructs us to begin our prayers. We are to begin with the most shocking and encouraging of all things that our minds could ever consider. That being who is of such incomparable wisdom and power that he was able to design and create everything that exists. That being's our Father. That deity who has been able by the exercise of supreme authority to control every event of history, to have his will done in every location, to completely control every life of every person who ever lives, that deity is our Father. That one who is in magnificent love put the plan of redemption in motion so that at the right moment his son came to live, die, and rise again so that we would have new and eternal life. That one is our father. That king who won't ever leave the work of his hands till everything he has purposed to do in us and in the world that he created has been fully done. That king is our father. That God who never needed a teacher or a counselor, who knows the stars by name, who can hold the waters of the universe in the palm of his hand, that God is our Father. You could do nothing more important than wake up every morning of your life and remind yourself that the one who created and controls everything that exists has been by grace to be your Father. And that's who we get to pray to. Second, hallowed be your name. 
As Pastor Jonathan already said, thanks for doing that. Helps me not have to explain it in my sermon. I'm already running low on time anyway. That's nobody's fault but mine. The word hallowed means to make holy, to be acknowledged and honored as holy. Now, what are we doing when we're praying for when we ask his name to become holy? Isn't it holy already? Doesn't the Old Testament say, holy is the, didn't we sing, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full with his glory? That's the first song we sang. Isn't that true? Isaiah 6, the cherubim, the angels, they're swarming around, they're, they're shouting to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Why do we have to pray for that if he's already holy? Because the world doesn't know that. The angels know that, heaven knows that, your neighbor doesn't. That's why we pray, hallowed be your name. The essence of this request is that God begin to show himself for who he is to people who don't know him. That the value and the worth and the weight and the importance of God would rest upon people. Turn them upside down, reorient their whole lives. That they would wake up to the greatness, glory, power, awesomeness of God himself. See, we are called to pray this too, church, because we are not immune from blaspheming and dishonoring God's name with our lives. And therefore, we pray as his people, God, help me to live up to the name by which I'm called Christian. Christ is in that name. If you claim the name of Christ, Christian, then we must be concerned with praying, hallowed be your name. Because we want to live up and live into that name. We want, to, we want our God, according to Hebrews chapter 11, to be not ashamed to be called our God. We don't want him to be ashamed to be called our God. Which implies that God can be. And we don't want to be that way. We want to be sons and daughters that delight the Father's heart. That's what we want to be. And that's what we're praying. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we're praying, God, help me to be a son. Help me to be a daughter that brings joy to your heart. Help me to be a son or daughter that shows the world who you truly are. See, by nature, when, before we were Christians, we didn't really want to live for God and his glory. What we really was, what we really wanted to live for was people, places, and things in our lives that could serve the glory of our comfort and satisfaction. We were glory thieves. But what happens when we become rescued by the grace of Jesus is we're transformed from being a glory thief to being a glory giver. And we, we desire our lives, our words, our whole existence to testify to the glory of God. That's how it would be your name. Your kingdom come. Well, you could, you could say the same thing about this as we just said about hallowed be your name. God's reigning right now, right? He's the king over the entire universe. But in this world, there are millions and millions and billions of people who are not submitting to his rule. His kingship and his kingdom are two very different realities. God is the ever-present, always-present, always-ruling king, but his kingdom is being extended. And his kingdom is triumphing and gaining ground every time a new person is made a disciple of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we pray 
Your kingdom come, it's a lordship petition. We are asking God to extend his royal power over every part of our lives, our emotions, our desires, our thoughts, our commitments, and to so fully rule us that we joyfully and gladly obey him with all our hearts and with all with joy. And we are also praying that his kingdom would extend that through his word and spirit, men and women and children from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation would be made kingdom citizens. And that when Christ would, and that Christ would return and establish his kingdom on earth in fullness and power and glory. See, what we're praying is, God, please reign over every single area of my life that is not presently in submission to Jesus. Please bring your kingdom so fully into my life that I willingly, joyfully relinquish all to you. That you are my master, you are my king, you are my sovereign. See, when we are converted, we receive Christ as Lord and Savior. But that, that's just the beginning. For the rest of our lives, Jesus is going to exercise his saving and lordship over us. And he's going to cont- continually, lovingly conquer us as, his king, as, our, as, as, as our king. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, we are saying, please, God, come rule, reign in me, reign over me. I want your kingdom to come right here, right now. I want people who are self-sovereign and who are self-appointed many kings in the earth that you have created to be brought into the true kingdom, your kingdom. See, we love being in control. We love getting our way. We love being indulged and served. We live for being right. But what God does is he is committed to progressively and perpetually dethroning us. And that's great. That is good news because life is found with him. And so for God to be our true father means that he is going to dethrone things in our life that are destructive to us just like a good father would do to you. Protect you from destroying yourself. And that's what God does with us. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're asking God to bring our wills into alignment with his will. We're asking that his will would be what is done on the earth. Not our will, but his will. And Jesus demonstrated this so much again and again, but especially in the Garden of Gethsemane, didn't he? This is the one petition that he took upon his own lips as he's getting ready to face down the cross. And he said, nevertheless, not my will, which was to avoid the cross if there was another way, but your will be done. I will do it. I will embrace it. So when we pray thy will be done, we are praying under circumstances far less crushing than those circumstances of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are praying that we would submit to God's will, fulfill his desires, whether they be bring sickness, poverty, disgrace, suffering, adversity, distress, that we would all recognize that as God's divine will in crucifying our will and that we would yield to it and joyfully go forward in it. Do you feel that way? I don't, which is why we need to pray this. Your will be done because there is still too much self in my will. There's still too much hallowing of my name in me. There is still too much of my kingdom come in me. I need your name, your kingdom, your will in my life. And that's what we pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus is saying, pray to the Lord about your necessities. We ask him to meet our needs. 
And this reminds us, brothers and sisters, doesn't it, that even though we live in the United States of America, we're almost for sure Aldi's going to be open tomorrow. Walmart's still going to be open. We're still going to have money in the bank account. Kroger's still going to have food. There's going to be no problem with the harvest. We still know that the mundane details of our lives are subject to the government of God. And if he doesn't bring it to pass, Kroger's going empty. Think of the mercy of God to sustain food for us. It's mercy. It's mercy. And only he has the power to control all the conditions and all the situations and all the locations and all the events and all the crops that have to be grown and the trucks that have to drive and the conditions to be right for the soil to produce what it needs to produce and the factories to be opened and people to be in there to work who are not sick and disabled. All those things are under the sovereign power and control of God and need to be controlled in order to to meet the needs of our lives. And that's why we pray, God, help us meet our every need. We're breathing. That's a gift. We anticipate having food this afternoon. That's a gift. Shelter and clothing. That's a gift. Job. That's a gift. Gift, talents, and abilities. Gift. Our independence is an absolute delusion. We are sustained moment by moment. What do we have that we did not receive? The Bible asks. And the answer is nothing. And forgive us our debts as we also forgiven our debtors. The fifth petition reminds us that we, we are going to have relational difficulty. <laughs> we are going to need to forgive other people and God is going to need to forgive us. That's because we are sinners and we live in a world of sinners. And so Jesus tightly links our relationship with God with our relationship with others. See, it works two ways. If we have no, no sense of our sin or the radical forgiveness from God, we'll be unable to forgive those who have wronged us. So then unresolved bitterness in our own lives and unwillingness to forgive others is a manifest, uh, manifest statement to our own souls that we are not right with God. It also means that we're holding a grudge, that if we're holding a grudge, we should see the hypocrisy of that. God doesn't hold a grudge against us for our sin. Calvin says, if we retain feelings of hatred in our hearts, if we plot revenge and ponder any occasion to cause harm, and even if we do not try to get back into our enemy's good graces, if we do not take every effort to try to get back into our enemy's good graces, by this prayer, we entreat God not to forgive our sins. Heavy stuff. So it's calling us to have, but here, here's the great news about this. If we follow this prayer, if we pattern our, pr- our prayers after these kinds of things, if we pray our Father in heaven, if we seek his kingdom, if we seek his will, if we seek his name, if we rely upon him for our daily necessities, guess what? When we get to that part, when we realize how great God is, how glorious God is, how powerful God is, how wonderful God is, forgiving another person is not all that big a deal. We've already wrestled. See, the reason why we have such a hard time forgiving is because we don't know God, at least in that moment. I'm talking about the experience of God, the the felt sense of our dependence and need for God is the reason that we struggle with unforgiveness and bitterness. And we all struggle with it. And Jesus is giving us the path back to sanity here. He's saying, get to know God, get to know your need, get to know your forgiveness. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
boy, you can't pray this prayer unless grace has visited you. Really can't. Because we as sinners, we, we don't like boundaries. We don't esteem rules. We don't like to be told what to do. We don't love authority. We, we want to be the author of our own moral codes and choices. But here's the good news about this. is You can only pray this prayer if you believe three things. Lead us not into temptation. That is, you believe that there is an ultimate authority in the world, namely God, and that his will is best. But you also believe that he has clearly communicated boundaries by which you're called to live. God originated, God communicated boundaries. And that real life is found inside those boundaries, not outside of them. And then you also recognize that you have an enemy who's prowling around seeking to devour you by getting you outside of those boundaries where you'll commit suicide, not literal, but spiritual. That you will literally give your heart, give your soul over to those things that will destroy you. So we recognize we live in a fallen world, sin's inside of me. I have an enemy prowling for my demise. I'm susceptible to be led astray. Oh God, moment by moment, lead me not into temptation. Protect me, watch over me, keep me, loving you, close to you, near you, not departing from you. And even when I sin, and even when I stumble, and even when I go far astray, God, bring me back. Bring me back. Do not let me go. That's all I have time for this morning. It was a very cursory overview, but I hope it was helpful. Let me just conclude with this. The Lord's Prayer provides us, I called this sermon the pattern for prayer, and that can be misunderstood a little bit. What I mean by that is that the, the Lord's Prayer, the, 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 the prayer that Jesus gives us here and teaches us about how to pray, it does not bind us to use the particular words all the time. It's not like unless you pray these words all the time, you're not praying real prayer. That's not the point. When he says pray like this, he means pray in this way. Pray consistent with these kinds of things. Pray the content and basic pattern, but you don't have to be a slave to the specific expressions all the time. There are other ways to pray about the hallowing of God's name than just saying, hallowed be your name. There are other ways to pray about, God, your will be done, than just saying, your will be done. You get the point. It's a pattern. It's a guide. But listen, all praying, all true praying has this at its heart, doesn't it? I mean, we should be able to look inside prayer and, and, and learn about prayer and see, see these sorts of things. They don't all have to be present every time we pray. But the general pattern of prayer in our life should be these kinds of things. Praying for God's name, God's kingdom, God's will, our provision, our pardon and our protection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for giving us this instruction through your son so that we can understand prayer. We acknowledge, I mean, this, this, this passage teaches on its very surface that we are little children because we got to be taught how to pray. We don't know how to pray unless you teach us how to pray. So we thank you that you're our Father, and we thank you that you have delighted through this weak instrument this morning to teach us something more about how to pray to you. And we pray that we would lean into it and live into it with all of our might. In Jesus' name, amen.